I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Richard Taylor, who is the Brexit Party parliamentary candidate for Blaenau Gwent. So Richard, you're not originally from Blaenau Gwent, you're from Clonetley. And you have a rather interesting background, don't you? I do, Martin. Yeah, I'm not your standard politician. I'm going to Oxford, Cambridge, or Eton, and the like. I've uh, from the streets, but to put it mildly. <laughs> well, I've read the book that you wrote about twelve years ago, yeah. or whatever, and it's called To Catch a Thief. Yeah. And of course, you were an adolescent robber. You were yeah. a burglar, a bit of mugging, and that. Yeah. Well, not mugging. But drugs, it, it, drugs. Was, it was still all bad. Uh, yeah, I was brought yeah. up in a working class family. My parents were. My dad was a heavy drinker, my mother was involved in drugs, and so my childhood was very coloured by those things. As a result, um, at a young age, I started experimenting with drugs, cannabis, you know, all the usual kind of stuff. Within a few years, I became addicted to much harder drugs. To feed that drug addiction, I committed crime, to which, to this day, I'm, you know, regretful of, and it was my past, that's what I did. I was put into foster care as well. That was a big part of my life as well, at 10 years of age. My mother dumped us in social services. Uh, she couldn't cope with us, and she left me and my three younger brothers, and we were split up and living with people we didn't know as our parents. It wasn't the ideal upbringing, and uh, consequently, as a result of that, I ended up going off the rails, involved in the wrong things with the wrong people, doing a lot of wrong things. Uh, as a young man, ended up in uh, Young Offenders Institute because of it, uh, rightly so. And uh, I was just in a bad place. I was in a bit of a mess, you know. Because the book that you've written actually goes into some detail, doesn't it, yes. about the incidents that you were involved with um, and um, burgling houses was a big part of it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was part of it, yeah. But it was more than that. I mean, it's, these are instances when I was off my head on drugs. I was in a bad place. And, you know, and uh, as I've said, you know, to this day, you know, I look back and I look at, with great shame on what my background was, what my past was. But it was the lifestyle that I was in. I didn't know anything else. It was what what a lot of kids in my especially my era, from my estate in Clenetley that I lived on, turned to because they didn't know nothing else. You know, it wasn't the main thing. It was, you know, theft, fighting, just all kinds of crazy things that really that if any of my kids did the same today I'd be I'd be mortified, you know. So that's that was my upbringing, yes. I think that uh, I mean in terms of Clenetley, I think there's there's still quite a lot of drug problem there now, isn't there? Massive, yeah. I work with a, a friend of mine called Alan Andrews who runs a drop-in centre called Choose Life. And uh, they've been working... In fact, they work with my own brothers, uh, one of which passed away from a heroin overdose just a few years ago. In fact, his anniversary of his passing is coming up now this next month. Alan Andrews runs a great drop-in centre uh, that offers people with addictions the opportunity to turn their lives around. And I think it's a great charity and I'm a great supporter of it. But Clenetley has a huge problem. It has for many years. There's a street called Station Road, which is well known in Llanelli, and they tend to uh, put everybody who has these addiction problems in this one place. I suppose to keep an eye on them, I suppose. But it's it's like many places, like here in the valleys as well. You know, there are major, major issues with with drugs. People who whose lives are just being ruined, and it's not just the people who take the drugs. It's their families, it's their parents, it's their aunts, their uncles. The knock-on effect is huge. And it's something that's growing and getting worse. And, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do if I'm elected or when I'm elected would be to help people in those situations because I can identify with them. I've been there and I can say to them, look, you don't need to stay like this. You can change. So what's the cause of this and what's the solution? There's a number of causes. I, I think the lack of opportunity is a big one. Poor education is another one. Um, that comes down whether it's local investment, whether it's, you know, um, the right 
upbringing, you know, having the right parents, because, you know, there were kids who went through difficult times who didn't turn to drugs, you know, they came out okay. So it's, it's not always about having a bad upbringing, you know. I think you have to be balanced, and I think the idea that we can stop the drug problem is just absurd, because I don't think we can. There's been talk about legalising certain drugs and, you know, keeping regulation on it and taxing it from the government's perspective. I'm not sure that's the answer. I think that prevention, as we say, is always better than cure. Education is important. And I spent many parts of my early life, after I turned my life around, going into schools, speaking to children about the dangers of drugs, the culture you get involved in. And it's not as glamorous as these gangsters you see on TV, you know, with their gold chains and their big cars. You know, we live in Wales, you know. <laughs> you see these guys who think they're gangsters in Wales. They're not gangsters. And I think it's been portrayed as a glamorous thing. Because you actually started at a pretty young age, didn't you? Oh, yeah, 13, so. 13 when I started, yeah, yeah really, really young. Um, and I think a lot of that was, uh, the drug addiction for me was me trying to suppress the, the pain of rejection. Uh, parents who struggled themselves and being put into foster care when you're 10 years of age uh, and being told that, uh, you, you know, I don't want these kids anymore. And my three younger brothers are crying at me as if it's, you know, I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm the old, eldest one of, the, of the, all of us. The, the other ones are too small, but... That responsibility and the idea that I could do something—it just that reject. I felt, I felt, I felt hurt. I was, I was, I was a hurting young boy, uh, crying myself to bed at night, going to sleep in foster cares, foster parents' houses. People I didn't know—they weren't my parents. They were loving people. They, they were good people, but they weren't my mum and dad. And all I cried out for was my mum and dad, and they weren't there. So, I think that rejection and pain—the only. Uh, placebo if you like to ease that pain was to take substances that would take the pain away and I never dealt with it and that you know I became an angry teenager and you know a terror wave as they say. Because you write about how when you were in the midst of all that I mean you could be quite an aggressive intimidating character couldn't you? Yeah. When you were doing it if you can think back how did you feel? Do you know what I didn't feel anything uh, my emotions were non-existent I think drugs take away any sense of responsibility or consequence or what you're doing to hurt people. I think that's removed from you. It makes you numb because you think the world owes you everything. It owes you nothing, really. Um, But that's how you feel at the time. Because you've been so hurt, you just literally have this sense of, I don't care. I don't care about myself, you know, never mind other people. If you don't care about yourself, you're not going to care about other people. And I think that there was no emotion attached even to the, the things that I did, the crimes that I committed when I did things that were wrong. There was no emotion attached to it. You know, when I get arrested and I, you know, end up in a cell, I, I was like, you know, whatever. You know, there was no, I go to jail, or my mates were in jail, you know, Young Offenders Institute in Swansea. And I just thought, this, I thought this was going to be the rest of my life. My life is I'm destined either to die of an overdose of drugs or spend the rest of my life in prison. That's the only prospects of the future that I had in front of me. That was it. So there's a bit that you get to in your book where you've done some quite serious stuff and you're remanded in custody and you're expecting to have a sentence which could be up to five years at one point. And then there is this incident that happens where you've been in touch with Christian people who are in the prison uh, or in the Young Offenders Institution, which, which actually partly was in the prison, wasn't it? Because it was yeah, Young Offenders Institute. It's, it's all changed now, yeah. But we weren't in the adult wing. That was separate air wing. That Young Offenders Institute was... They're even younger in there now. They're aged like 14, 15. They have the YPs, I think it's called now, isn't it? So a lot younger. 
yeah, I got in touch. Um, the, the chaplain in the, in, the, in the prison came to see me, Ted Hunt, and uh, a lovely man. He's not no longer with us now, but I, I owe a lot of um, great debt to him because he was instrumental in my, my, my conversion, if you like, or my turnaround, if you like. He came into my cell and he talked to me and he just asked me about me. <laughs> Nobody asked me how I was feeling. Everybody just judged me because of the way I was, because of the problems I had. And he was interested in me as a person. And that really broke through a lot of barriers. Um, and I started to listen to what he had to say. And I thought, you know what? This guy really cares. <laughs> I had met anybody that cared, strangely enough. And I started to open up to him about my past, about the things I'd been to, the domestic abuse I'd seen in my family, my mother and father, the volatile environment I was brought up, the rejection that I felt. And I began crying in, in prison, which, by the way, you don't really need to start crying in prison. It's the wrong, you know, you've got to put on a bit of a front, you know, in, in Swansea time. And I just did. I just broke down and... Then a prison fellowship came in, a guy called Ken Shingleton, who is my hero, because he became the person that set me on a path that was to radically change my life. And I, I you know, I still speak to him now. He's quite old now. And, uh, and when I go to Swansea, I go and see him and Sheila, his wife as well. Both of them, very special people to me, because if it hadn't been for them intervening, I wouldn't be here. And it, actually, we're talking in Abbotton area, and there was a, yeah. a Christian organisation based in Abertillery that you were sent to by the court after they had yeah. intervened and said that they were going to look after you? Well, it was interesting. The judge, I remember it now, the judge said to me, he said, I want to give this young man a chance. He says, and I'm aware of an organisation called Victor Outreach UK in Abertillery. He was, he was aware of the work, the charity they did, the rehabilitation centre. And I'm going to give him a chance and I'm going to remand him. Rather than into, back into prison, I'm going to send you there. I was like, wow, you know, and then Dinah Sanson who run it then, the, the director and Dave Sanson, they took me in. I went there, uh, which is down the road from where we are having this uh, interview with, you know, Martin, in Abertillery, and August 11th, 1993, I believe it was, a moment that I will never forget. I had, what I describe now to help people that might not understand the Christian world too much, I had a spiritual encounter that radically, radically uh, had an impact and changed my life. Um, literally and I was there for what three years in rehab that's how messed up my life was I needed three years in rehab um, and during that three years I learned you know not only to respect um, to to be a decent human being but to respect and love other people as well and that I I needed to give back that became for me once I turned my life around there was this desire I've got to do something now to repair what I felt was damaged from my teenage years and other people and, you know, that became a big thing for me and it still continues to be to this day. Because there was this uh, sequence in the court where you write about feeling as if somebody yeah. was putting their hand on your shoulder. What, what was all that about? Yeah, I did. Um, it's funny because my co-defendant, Michael Morgan, we were brought up from the, the docks, up to the, into the docks, sorry, from the cells. Not only the officers, we can't screw, the officers were behind us. I was expecting to go back to prison and I thought that was it. And I felt, a, I felt a hand rest on my shoulder. And if anyone ever does that, you know, you, you, you know someone you respect or love and you feel that, you, you feel, it makes you feel better, you know. We're, we're not so much, we're not a physical people anymore because we're fearful to be, you know, for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, I just felt a hand of reassurance and I literally felt that real. I turned round to see if there was anybody there. I thought it might have been an officer, which was very doubtful to be an officer, trying to, you know, make me feel better. And there was nobody there, but I felt a hand. And these were small incremental incidences that I felt that led me to, like, is there something? Is there someone looking over me? Is there someone watching over me? 
you know, the journey of faith that I went on because I, to this day, still believe that there was something or somebody watching over me in the court that day. I believe that. You also say that you, you spoke to Jesus and Jesus spoke to yes. you. Yes. That was August 1993. I had this spiritual encounter, which I've mentioned, which some of your viewers and hearers might find a bit strange, but this is my story. I was in the Bush Hotel Abitary and I closed my eyes out of respect for the Christians who I was with. At that point, I wasn't a believer. I had a vision and I saw Jesus Christ, you know, on the cross, uh, saying that he loved me and he died for me to forgive me of my sin. Well, no one needed to tell me I was a sinner. I mean, I knew I was a sinner. You know, I was, I was, I was a bad sinner. And at that moment, I just fell on my knees and started to cry uncontrollably. And uh, I felt this warmth over me. As I said, for people who are listening, it's a, it was a spiritual encounter. <laughs> And uh, it changed my, it changed me. I was a changed man. You know, there was no desire for drugs anymore. I didn't want the, the lifestyle I had before. It was what they call a Damascus Road experience, which I'm sure many people have heard of. They call it the born again experience. I don't want to put tags on it, but I had an experience, and it did change my life. Did you think that Jesus was standing in front of you at the time? I did. Yes, I had. Did a you see him? Yes, I had a vision, yes. Whether it was in my mind, by the way, it wasn't the drugs, I just didn't let it snow, right? It wasn't, I was not on anything at the time. But yeah, I did. And even my friends now who were not Christians, who were, who were atheists, I tell them the story and they're like, and they just, oh, Rich, shut up, Blue. They don't believe. You know, but I, I can't deny what I've experienced and I will never deny that, you know, irrespective of what I'm doing now. That is my, my journey, you know. But was this that you said you refer to as a hotel? Is that a pub? Uh, no, it's an old um, hotel. It used to be uh, run by David and Dinah Sansom. Uh, it was set up in the 70s, I think. They were working on the streets of London, working with people. Um, a great couple who did a great amount of good stuff for a lot of people. And I happened to be one of those people that, uh, that they helped. And I'm so thankful and grateful to this day for that, giving me that opportunity to change. They then, I think it was, um, I'm trying to think of a, he was a quite a well-known guy. He was a justice of the peace, actually. Oh, Martin was his first name, strangely enough. Uh, he was well-known. I think he based in Chepstow. He was, he was financially very uh, well-to-do, to say the least. And uh, he uh, backed them. And I, they purchased a hotel, 20-bedroom hotel, which is based here in Amtillery, which is where I was. And there was a daily program. So you get up every morning, you have breakfast, you do your prayers, you do your Bible study, then you want a works program. So the idea of work, you know, for a lot of people that come from that background and structure... Was, you know, was never there. So it started to build routine into your life that you never had as a wayward drug addict, if you like. It really brought some structure. And that helped build into me then responsibility and discipline and all those things. And I think, and the work continues today. They do a great job. My wife and I run it for a few years, as you know, and um, we, we loved it for five years. And then obviously we've, oh, we're doing different things now, yeah. Because there are those who might say that at the time when you converted to being a Christian it was convenient for you because otherwise if you hadn't done that like your friend who was your co-accused you know had been remanded back in yeah. custody and that you could have had a long yeah. sentence so there were there are those who will say oh well, look at him it was in his interest to yeah. turn to Jesus um, <laughs> you know there will be cynical well, people who I, d- I don't know if it was in my interest because when I turned to Jesus as you, as you put it I became a Christian I've I've been I've been vilified even more, <laughs> so um, yeah, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because unless it's happened to you personally, it's it's very difficult. You can't force your own experience on other people. You know, I can only talk from my personal experience, and I 
I think I didn't do it to avoid anything because I was still at that point. I was still I still had charges to face, uh, which I was ready to do. And my whole thought pattern was, you know, get out of jail, you know, rob the rehab and run off and go back to Leslie. But because of that experience I had, it changed everything. I thought, no, this is real. This Christian thing for me became real. And I thought, I've been arrested by this now. And I need to do something about this because it's not just, you know, what I thought I was going to do. And so I think an avoidance, you know, as people say, you know, the whole faith thing can be a crutch. Well, I'll be honest, I needed a crutch. I was in a bad place. I was I was wounded and uh, it worked for me. Because you came, became quite uh, zealous, didn't you, in terms of Christianity? Because I think you're saying the book, you, you read the Bible from cover to cover yes, three times. I did. Not many people can claim <laughs> that, I imagine. But then you actually went into uh, being a pastor, didn't you? Yes. Well, how did that come? Because I know when you wrote this book about 12 years ago, whatever it yeah. was, uh, you were at the time in Solihull near Birmingham. Yeah. So tell us what yeah. happened well, after you I, had... Converted. I went back to Bible school. I, I went on a uh, with the University of Wales. It was it was a credit course with the University of Wales to do a degree in theology. Um, I did two years. After two years, I was too eager to get on with work and get out and do the job of what I was being trained for. So I got my diploma in theology. I went to be the minister's pastor of a small church in Tipton in the Black Country, where I met my wife, obviously through the Bible College as well, Jill, and then. Um, we started, or we, we took on a church, a small Assemblies of God church it was called, and there was a, a, a congregation maybe of about 20, 30 elderly people, and uh, they embraced me, and they gave me an opportunity to be their minister when I was a young boy, you know, really, and I grew in that, and they, they mothered me, really, and fathered me, and it was an interesting time. And then the church began to grow because of my speaking, my, my oratory, I suppose, um, Where did the oratory come from? I genuinely, Martin, I honestly don't know. I've never been trained. I've never had any, you know, formal training in that way. We can talk about being passionate as a Welshman, as I am, but I think sometimes you're given a gift and you're responsible to use that gift in the right way. And I think in my teenage years, that gift was squandered and it wasn't used in the right way. And as I obviously turn my life around now, that gift has become a, a big thing in my life, you know. I, and I know because I've heard people when I speak, they feel inspired, they feel encouraged. They, and if I can do that to make someone feel good, how well, that's, it's a gift. Because you were speaking in tongues as well at one point. Right? Yeah, it was a, it was a, the Pentecostal church has this um, thing where we talk about speaking in glossolalia, other tongues, you know, just Wikipedia, you can find it. And it's a spiritual experience at the Pentecostals that we believe that you can have the gift of tongues, which is a, a heavenly language. I know, again, listening to this, some people might find it very strange, but that's the, the environment, that the Christian environment that I was nurtured in. It wasn't Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, it was Pentecostal. I know the Pentecostals can be quite wild, right? They can, quite, you know, extrovert, if you like, in their, in their singing, in their clapping, you know, the old... The Southern American kind of church, yeehaw, hallelujah, Jesus, you know, it's all, it's all like that. Southern Baptist. Yeah, it's Southern Baptist. So, yeah, I think being in that environment, you're shaped by it. And I think that was a big part of it for me. You were running this uh, place in Tipton. Yeah. And then you moved on somewhere else. You yeah, I... came to uh, South Wales. Yeah, well, prior to that, Dave Carr was the senior minister, he's a bishop now, of uh, Renewal Christian Centre, one of the largest churches in the country, actually. They had about 2,000 members at the time, very large church. And he asked me to go and join him as his assistant associate, and I did. That was where? Uh, Solihull. Oh, yes. Solihull. Solihull. Yeah, yeah. Uh, went to with him. I was there maybe 10 years, I think, 9, 10 years as an associate. 
and had some wonderful times there, did some great things in the community, we set up helping hands, a lot of social projects that have been dear to my heart uh, about community I helped develop. I set up a charity called the Gateway Foundation, which was for ex-offenders and addicts when they came out of prison, supporting them with housing, clothing, bonds on flats, things they needed to build their lives again. So I got involved in a lot of that. And then I came back to Wales. Dave and Dennis Hanson, Big Rubbish, invited me to take over as the new director, me and my wife. And we came back down. And, uh, yeah, we run the rehab then for quite a few years. And we, 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 had, we had a good time. It was good. Because you were in Cumbran, I think, really? Yeah, we started a church in Cumbran. The church in Cumbran was... Um, not to, I didn't plan to start the church in Cumbran. It was uh, working with addicts. They're a different kind of person altogether. So when we were taking them to... Because we were a Christian organisation, so we believed going to church was important. So we used to take the residents to church and everything else. We were going to churches and church folk didn't know quite how to handle drug addicts or speak to them or, you know, so a young girl would come up to a guy, you know, and start talking and she's a pretty looking thing and you say, you, you can't, no, we're going to get you away, we're going to protect you from all this now, we're trying to get your head together, you know what I mean? Or if someone was there with, you know, offering them to go for a meal or something, but alcohol was involved, but we had to keep the guys away from all that. So, and it wasn't cultish, it was protection. We had to protect them because we were trying to sever the lifestyle they came from and then rebuild, re-input, and then put them back out, like in my case. And I think out of that, I thought I need to do something. I started the church really for them at the start. And we developed it. And you know what? Within, within six months, I think it was maybe 12 months, the church grew exponentially. We'd gone from like, you know, 30 people to like 400 people. Mm. Like within a year, it just exploded, and the whole thing just went massive, beyond anything that I expected. You know, I'd have people travelling all around the country, different parts of the world, just to come and hear me speak, and it was just one of those things that it just happened. I had no, it wasn't planned, it wasn't strategic, it just happened, and uh, I happened to be involved in that. And we, we, you know, some of the guys who were on the staff there, on the team there, became. Uh, full-time employee we employed them by the church they became you know running the church and and I was doing other things outside the church I was still running the rehab I was working in television for Optimum Television I had my own tv show called It Takes a Thief um, helping shopkeepers against thieves and criminals how to protect their shops it was all that so I was my life would just for whatever reason it had gone in all these different directions and I was just flat out in demand doing all kinds of crazy things yeah what was the name of the church that you were involved Victory in? Victory Church. Victory Church. Yeah. So you're not still involved in that? No, no, no. no. What happened there Well, I went through a moral failure with my wife. This is well documented and I have no um, sharing. Obviously, it's painful for me still. Still raw for me and my wife. Um, I committed adultery against my wife. And, was um, there somebody in the congregation? No, no, it wasn't. Nobody in the church, nobody in Victory Church. Not even in Wales, but that's another story. So I stepped down from the ministry because um, obviously I was in a, not a very good place. And I didn't feel that you could continue to be a minister when you know such things occur. So I stepped down, and it was a it was a dark period in my life, very dark period. I became very suicidal. Thought I'd I'd, I'd ruined everything. I'd built all this thing up, and I'd helped loads of people, and now I'd done this. And the people I thought loved and respected me turned on me as well, which was painful for me and my wife. More particularly, not so much for me, but for my wife and my children. You know, I betrayed people's trust always because I was a minister. I committed adultery. I stepped down, and. The whole thing was just a mess. I had people taking the blogs online, and you get slated. People say things that aren't true. There's all this kind of rubbish out there, and it's just absolute nonsense. The only thing that was true was is what I did against my wife. That was the only truth. And that was painful enough for me, and it's still painful to me now. Mm-hmm. 
because I have to live with that the rest of my life. And my wife asked as well. And she forgave me. We renewed, renewed our vows many years ago. And um, I'm still with my wife now, I like to say, my five beautiful children. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a scar that I have to live with the rest of my life. And um, what an idiot I was, an absolute clown, you know. But it's my past, it is what it is. And I'm hoping that, you know, other people can probably hear what I've got to say and say, listen, you know, sometimes you get thrown into situations where you become popular, you're the best thing since sliced bread, everybody thinks you're amazing, but don't believe your own publicity. Mm-hmm. We're all vulnerable people at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And it broke me. It broke me. And as I said, I, I became suicidal. I, I locked myself in the bedroom for three weeks. My wife had to witness this and we went for counselling and through the counselling it really, really helped to understand that what I'd gone through, the, the whole Christian experience had kind of not helped, allowed me to deal with my past. It kind of like, it kind of said, right, okay, this was your past, you know, you've been forgiven, it's okay. But yes, that might be true, but I hadn't dealt with things in my life. And I think through the process of counselling, that really helped me to identify those areas and um, to be in touch with the emotion of it. And I think it's important. It's easy to, a lot of people will have these experiences, but at the end of the day, you have to deal with things in your life. And, that, and that's what I did, yeah. So, so after that, what are you going to go with then? You said a business? Yeah, well, I, I did. I had a couple of things. I, I um, My main thing was consultancy work and speaking, you know, public and public speaking. I did some motivational speaking and stuff like that, as you can imagine, for all kinds of companies. They bring me in, you know, they tell me the product, and I just... Let rep, you know, on sales and all. I did a bit of that. Um, I worked in with Optimum Television, which was a big thing. Uh, I thought I was going to have a career in television. I was offered a career in television, but due to what I got, got to with my wife, it would have taken me away to, to London four or five days a week in, an, in a culture and environment that wouldn't have been good for me. So I had to turn it down. So um, Optimum Television, is that a Christian thing? No, no. The secular, right. I think it's owned by... Um, What's his name? The chef. It's called One Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. It's, yeah, it's called One Potato, Two Potato now. So it's a different organisation now, a, a company now. But I did some work with them. And that, that was great. You know, I got to meet a lot of people. You know, up until, you know, this elections now, all is coming up. I've been a career driver, self-employed, own business person, um, driving my van, you know, with a few other guys as well that have been working with me, driving around, delivering par- uh, pallets and all kinds of stuff, you know, to different companies. And that's that's what I've been doing, you know. I've I've just been doing a normal job, looking after my family, looking after my wife, looking after my children and being the best dad I can be. You know, that's and that to me is the most important thing. So when you were involved in the criminal activity, the church activity, was politics a part of your life at all? No, absolutely. You know, my dad used to say to me, and he's, he's not, look, no longer with us now, he said to me, he said, son, never get involved with religion or politics. And uh, People involved with politics. I, I know, I know. <laughs> I can hear his words now, and, you know, and I think to myself, dad, I got involved with blooming both, didn't I? You know, I didn't, didn't plan to, but that's how things turned out. And politics for me was, I hated politics, actually. I just saw a bunch of self-serving people that didn't care about communities and people that I just thought they're just in it for themselves and I just never paid any attention I used to listen to question time quite a lot you know I was uh, one of those people who'd shout at the tv on a Thursday night and send the wife up the stairs because she couldn't cope with it uh, but there was one person in particular that that I would listen to and I, I just used to I found an affinity to and that was Nigel Farage not loved by everybody but certainly for me he spoke my language I just got what he said I was what you would call a silent supporter of UKIP 
the reason for that is I didn't believe in some of the extremes and the attachments they had to it, you know, because it wasn't me. But I, the, the, the fundamental message I could understand about independence and sovereignty and our nation, and I, I just, those things resonated. And so I think that kind of, that was my nearest connection to politics, if you like, you know. And not forget, in the church world can be quite political as well. You know, you saw, maybe I was trained prior to coming into this, I don't know. I saw that what was happening as well in my own communities. As I said, as I played rugby here in Blyna for three years. I still manage Nandy Glow Vets football team up here in Blyna Gwent, in, in Blyna itself, Nandy Glow. And the town centres that I've known since I was 1993, since when I moved up here, I've seen the heart and soul just be ripped out of them. You know, forget who's to blame for that. That's what I saw and witnessed. And I was trying to call it, well, what, what are the reasons for that? Why are the communities in South Wales Valleys being decimated? Why are we so poor? Why is deprivation so high in the valleys? Why is that? You know, it, it, it's got, there's got to be something to blame for that. And I, and I just thought, I've got to look into it more. And I think that was my journey into politics, if you like. So do you think uh, the European Union is to blame for that? I think there's a number of things. I wouldn't just blame the European Union. Of course I wouldn't do that. I mean, it's naive me to do that. I think there are a number of issues. That I think, because obviously when we joined the EU, I, I was just born in 1975, and so I, mean, I, I was born in 75. So um, I think there's been a progressive number of issues, you know, whether it's devolved issues with the Welsh Assembly, uh, whether it's, you know, Labour that have been dominant in the valleys for so many years. And it's easy to blame politicians. I understand that. And I'm not one of those that, you know, would, would in any way blame any individual uh, for the cause or collapse of a society or a community like mine, but there are contributing factors that somebody play a part in. And I think, as I began looking into it, I thought to myself, you know, I started asking questions about funding, investment into youth projects, and I saw things shutting down all the time, not opening. There, was no, there weren't any jobs going. My friends, who, who most of them work outside of Blanagwent, outside of my constituency, for that, and I thought, this is crazy. We, this is a beautiful place. If you look, it's, it's dark now, but if you go around during the daytime, it's a stunning valley. There we got lakes, we got Contillary lakes up there. We got the valleys up here. It's unbelievable. And yet, there's no investment. We had the circuit that was going to be built that, that didn't get built. That would have got thousands of jobs. There's the M4 relief road that brings business in. All these things became contributing factors to the deprivation that I saw, which then I thought, well, that's politics, that is. So someone needs to do something. I need to say something. I, was I prepared to do it? And then I began, obviously... Uh, getting involved in local issues, campaigning for better public transport, all the, the, the things that before the elections are called, by the way, all this was going on. And because of my involvement in the community, I'd supported local sports. Uh, the council were doing asset transfer of properties to companies, to, to, the, to the football, to the rugby. I was involved in some of that with the guys. I just became passionate about the community. I've always have been. 20 years of my life I've been, I suppose in a sense, because of what I did and where I come from, I wanted to give back. And I've just spent 20 years of my life trying to do that. And so politics was a opportunity to try to do something for the people of Blenheim. You weren't involved in UKIP then? No. Brexit party's only been going since uh, the early part of this year, hasn't yeah, it? Seven months. Something yeah, like yeah. that. So how did you actually come to be so intimately involved? Right. Um, it was after 2016, the Democratic vote, obviously, you know, 17.4 million. I'm, I'm set up a year in it now, you know, but I, that came about. And I thought, you know, I, I needed to do something. So I was angry about it. I was angry. Um, I voted to leave, by the way, so I clear that up. I was just angry that not so much over 
how we got to that stage or why people voted to remain on leave, whether there was wrong information, right information. It, was what, it wasn't right or left policy. It was right or wrong. This is wrong. We overwhelmingly voted to leave. And I thought, this isn't democracy, because if we allow this to happen, then do we allow future uh, votes to happen where democracy is denied? This is not, this is not our country. And I got, I felt really angry. And uh, I began looking around over, obviously, the UK uh, Brexit party just formed. And what happened was I was invited by a local businessman called Bob Smith to go to a Brexit party rally in Merthyr Tidville. And at that rally, uh, I think Nigel was speaking, obviously Nigel Farage. He got up on the platform and I, I was at the front and there was hundreds of people there, you know. And he began to speak and I just listened. Not in awe. He's not, he's not, you know, he's not messianic or my hero. But I listened with... with trying to understand what is at the heart of this Brexit party. And as I listened to Nigel, it became clear to me that the message that he was promoting for the Brexit party was the closest to any idea of politics that I'd ever shaped the thought in my mind. I thought, this is a party that I want to be part of. So that, that was all the other policies and LSK, that was what it was the heart of the party about democracy and about ordinary, hardworking people like me being able to potentially be a voice in Westminster. So it was more sort of rise of the people rather than the usual politicians. And I think uh, that, that was the, the, the most important thing. And I got involved in by-elections then in Peterborough and in Brecon and uh, helped out. And I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And I thought, you know what, this might be something I could really get involved in. And don't forget, I'm, at this time, I'm still working, self-employed. So there's no, you know, I'm doing this off my own back, my own time. And I just felt, I just felt that we... I needed to be the voice of democracy for the people that I represent. So that, that was the, the reason why, really. So I think you mentioned a little earlier that you were concerned about the issue of laws not being made in Britain, being made in Brussels, Strasbourg. Yeah. What are the European laws that you think are so objectionable? Yeah, well, there's a lot, isn't there? I mean, if you look at the, not the, the withdrawal agreement, if you look at the, I mean, even things down to like what light bulbs you use in your house. You know, these are EU regulations. And I didn't realise all this. And I looked at all the things and it constrains us and doesn't allow us to be independent and sovereign to make our own choices and decisions. Down to like, you know, to the the, the tyre tread on your car. I mean, you know, I know people listen to say, seriously, it's in there. I started all these things and the ability not to be able to trade with other countries, you know, because of the rules set within the EU regulations, all these things, I, I just felt they were constraining for our country and I thought we, we need to be free from all this. And I didn't realise when we signed up to the EU, because initially it was meant to be for trade, you know, we were a trading partner and all of a sudden we're joining this kind of European state in my, in my mind. It might not have been the case for some, but for me. And we're being controlled by what I consider to be an undemocratic, um, a, 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 you know, bunch of bureaucrats, as they used to call them, in, in, in the European Union. I, I just thought, is this what we did? Is, is this what we signed up for in 1975? Really? Is that what we wanted our country to be? But they're, they're the bigger issues, Martin. So do you think that um, Britain and Wales will be more prosperous outside the customs union and the single market? I think it will be. I think we can. You know, I mean, you, you know, most, we've most got. Yeah, I know we do. I know. Well, economists got it wrong when we voted to leave. They said there'd be lack of jobs, there'd be all this kind of crisis would happen. Armageddon was going to happen, and it never I happened. Think it was George yeah, well, and it never happened. You know, I think predictions are one thing, polls are another thing. You know, economists say another thing. I think for me, 
it was it was the bigger question. It wasn't about whether or not we'll struggle or we'll be prosperous. It was about democracy that we voted to leave. And I think at the heart of this argument, and I know there's many who disagree with me, even if it meant it might be a few bumps in the road along the way, we voted to leave. And if we take that democratic right of the people away because of the economists predicting it's going to be difficult, then we, we, have, we have basically, what is democracy? Democracy only works when there's losers' consent. When they say, yes, we get it, okay, we lost the board. Like a general election coming up now. So if Boris doesn't get in or whoever doesn't get in, do we have another general election because we didn't like the result? I know referendums are different, I get that. No, I had one too, yeah. No, I know, I know. So I think, you know, it's for me, it was, that was the bigger issue. How and many job losses would be acceptable to you? If we come out of well, single market and companies say we're pulling out of, I, I'd rather look at. I would rather look on the positive side. How many job opportunities will there be when we're outside of the EU? There are great opportunities, you know, not just our party saying it. And the Conservatives have made it clear. John Boris Johnson's mm. part of his campaign is the whole thing about believing in our country and what is wrong in having some pride in our nation and in our country, and particularly Wales, of course. What is wrong with having some kind of idea that we can be a great nation again because we were when you look back over history and as i often try and read and catch up on from an uneducated background trying to educate myself now i, I find that we we were one of the biggest industrial countries in the world you know we, we we did amazing things and we've lost a lot of that we've lost our identity i think we've been swamped by this european ideal dream that we can belong to this super state and we're all you know, in it together with the EU army and the EU bank and, the, you know, this nation of European countries come together. I just think it's, it's, I just think that for me is not what I feel close to. I, I'd rather us be Great Britain. <laughs> is there are countries uh, in Europe uh, currently outside the EU yeah. who are clamouring to join it. And there have been more countries that have joined the EU over the last few years uh, who think that there is value in being part of this big single market, which is the biggest trading bloc yeah. in the world? And well, we trade outside of that as well, as you know. It's of not course, just, yeah. but the EU is the biggest yeah. trading bloc in the world. And farmers in Wales, for example, if they're exporting lamb, are going to come up against a huge problem, aren't they, with the tariffs? Yeah, it, it is a big thing. I think some of the countries wanted to join. Um, you know, sometimes they see an opportunity. Obviously, and I, I've not qualms about it because some of those are struggling countries and uh, the investment I think I know, I'm sure we're the fourth largest contributor to the EU you know we prop up a lot of stuff a lot of countries that are failing in their economies we help them and I think us coming out of the EU a big part of them not wanting us to come out and that's been clear from for short, you know from all of them from uh, the different European leaders it's clear that they know there will be a financial implication to us leaving the EU which is clear and I think uh, for us here in Wales and the farming community, obviously, particularly in Blenheim, where we don't have a massive farming community here, I know, but in Brecon and Radnorshire and places close by we do, and it's a big issue. Subsidies are paid, and my understanding is that the subsidies that are paid from the European Union, that there is a contingency within the Treasury that allows for those subsidies to be covered while the transitional period is going on. Um, that's from the Conservatives, obviously, you have to speak to Boris about that. <laughs> and I think there are ways to get round that. But there's, there's other things, you know, uh, the, the climate change is, is a real thing. I'm not a climate change denier, by the way, which might sound a bit strange to a lot of people. They think Brexiteers are all... No, 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 I believe the man has contributed to a huge part of what's been happening in, 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 around the planet. And I, I, we need to take personal responsibility. You know, when I was younger, we were never told about this. We had a black bin, everything went in there, we threw it out to the bin man, you know. 
my children come home from school now. They, Dad, you know, turn the water off, put these special lights in, LED saving, all. You, you, you learn stuff. And I think there are a lot of things within the EU. It's not all bad, mind. And I remind you, we're still European in the sense that we're not just, just not in the EU. I think we've learned a lot. But I still go back to the main issue is the democratic vote. And I cannot, call me blinkered, I can't get away from it. That, that to me is essential because it's what our country was founded on, democracy. And we were the mother of all democracies in our country. And we can't lose that over the sake of a few you know, quid here and there. And so I think, for me, there's a lot of issues that the EU have highlighted. And uh, there are things, some of those things will continue into our policies and laws here. They, they won't change. You know, as, as you know, there's an integration of things, you know, and I think you don't need to change everything. But I just find the whole concept of being tied and paying the billions and billions of pounds to the EU that we have over the years, that should not continue because we voted to leave. So now that uh, Boris Johnson is uh, Prime Minister, he's got this plan to leave, which he will proceed with if he wins a general election. What's the point of the Brexit party? Well, I, we've played a huge part. If it wasn't for us, there'd be you no know, referendum wouldn't have happened. If it weren't for us, Theresa May would still be in power, and she's the worst prime minister in history. So I think we, uh, what we've done is we have changed the political landscape in, in many ways. I think Nigel, what Nigel has achieved actually as, as a politician who has never won a seat, he's done more to affect the direction of politics than any other politician I know. So we've played our part, and I think but there's a lot more to do. Our argument was we wanted a clean break Brexit, which was complete an absolute uh, cut away from the EU, not tied into any to any of it, any shape or form. And Boris um, has sold that. And I think he took a bit of a, I'll admit it, took a bit of our uh, thunder a little bit. And he's copied Nigel. If you listen to some of, I was looking at it today, if you look at uh, Boris's, you know, his sound bites and things that he's saying now, he's just copying Nigel Farage. Nigel was saying some of this, year, reform, all the stuff we talked about years ago, reforming, We've done that. We, Nigel was talking about years ago, and now the Conservative Party are doing it, and it's okay. When Nigel Farage came out with it, well, that's not acceptable. And even our policies, as you know, we don't have a manifesto. We started coming out with policies on the campaign trade prior to the election. As soon as we were sending them out, the Conservative parties were like, yes, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. We're like, we've been talking about this before them. So they, you know, they say, it's flat, even someone copies you. I don't know if that's the, the case, but Boris Johnson's deal for us didn't go... Far enough at the time, and it was Brexit in name only. Um, I think some of that's shifted and changed. Nigel obviously has, has felt that you know we the most important thing to him, and I think his whole life has been is to get us out of the EU, in my opinion. And I think once he saw how Boris was functioning and operating, there might be a way to get Brexit done, <laughs> in the words of the Prime Minister. And I think that we wanted to make sure that would happen and hold into account. And for that to happen, we need to get some Brexit MPs elected similar to the DUP, so we can hold Boris's feet to the fire and, uh, and make sure that he does deliver on as much as possible as a clean break Brexit as he can. How hopeful are you about being elected? I'm privately, how would I say, I'm privately nervous. I don't know is the real answer. I don't think any real candidate knows if they're going to get elected. Publicly, I'm confident because I'm out working hard every day, Monday through to Sunday, what I'm hearing on the streets. And I know candidates can be biased. You know, they're never going to say, I've had a bad week on the streets, no one's going to vote for me. But I can hand on heart say the conversations that I've had with people in my constituency has been very, very overwhelmingly positive as to negative. Um, I don't go by polls. Don't listen to what the polls say. 
I go by the bookies. I think I mentioned you earlier. I check the bookies. My odds have been good at the minute. They've gone from 100 to 1 to 14 to 1. So, and that probably get better as we go on. So, I don't know. All I know is if I'm elected, or as my campaign manager says, when you're elected, I just want to do the best for the people of Blindergwent. That is the most important thing to me. And I don't care about green seats in Westminster. <laughs> I shouldn't say it really. I'm trying to get elected, I know. I care about my people, the people of Blindergwent. They are the most important things. I'm. I'm people before party. I know we say country before party. I'm people before These are my people. You know, they're my community. And I want to do something with my life to leave a mark because I've done enough bad stuff in my past. I want to do something to leave a mark that says, you know what, he, was a, he started off bad, but he turned out a good boy he did and he done well for us. That's what I want to do. Richard Taylor, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.